Welcome to another edition of the Burnt Podcast. I'm Brandon Lawrence. What up, everybody? It's Steve Sample. And only one of us on this podcast currently has the shits. Ha <laughs> ha! Diarrhea. It's not. It's yeah, not. Super fun. Um, I, I had I had the most amazing new KFC. The only thing I can think of other than catching something from a patient is that uh, I, I stopped yesterday um, at, a new, at a Kentucky Fried Chicken and had their new chicken sandwich. But it was fresh. And if I may say, glorious. Uh, yeah. And like, you compared it, it to the Chick Fil A sandwich, huh? It, it, it beats Chick Fil A and likely the Popeye sandwich as well, which I have had. It was really, really tasty. So and, I, I, so I, I hope that that's not what is making me um, spend all day in the bathroom. But this podcast is brought to you by KFC, <laughs> by KFC and Emodium. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, we're a little delayed uh, getting this out, but uh, this week we got to talk to Senka, uh, who is a general surgeon based out of Poland. Um, really interesting, uh, pretty snarky, active presence on med Twitter uh, and things like that. Um, and she tells us a little bit about her story. What did you find uh, interesting about her, Brandon? Well, I, I've always found her interesting. She's one of the four or five people I play med Twitter chess with. We, uh, have our own text group and not text group, Twitter, direct message group, whatever. Uh, it's really nerdy. Um, but uh, <laughs> so she's uh, she's she's pretty feisty. Uh, she's she's becoming a pretty good chess player. I I mean, I'm totally jealous of the life that she got to lead um, kind of going into the pandemic of of uh, traveling the world and doing medicine. And um, it's kind of an interesting story. She goes from this kind of worldwide travel, going wherever she's needed, doing all the the work to help, you know, the underserved. And then she finally signs her first job as an attending and the pandemic hits. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yes. She has lived a really cool life. uh, And we're going to talk to her a little bit today about her time with uh, doctors without borders. Uh, When you hear her say MSF, uh, that is Doctors Without Borders in French. Uh, I will butcher it if I say it, uh, so I won't. But uh, she got to do some really neat stuff, kind of intermixed with her training as a general surgeon. Uh, so I got to learn a little bit about the differences between how we train here and how they train overseas, because her taking a year of her life to do Doctors Without Borders would not likely fly uh, in the U.S. system of medicine. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's a circuitous route that she took to from childhood all the way to uh, being a doc in Poland. And you'll notice that her English is pretty flawless and there's reasons why. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So we didn't have, we tried to uh, theme these out sometimes and talk about, you know, kind of a specific emotion or, or, or theme or something that kind of runs through the thread of the podcast. But this really, this is just a cool story uh, with a cool lady doing cool work. I guess uh, one so- thing I would say is like we, we spend our entire twenties, right. Um, trying to get through medicine. So we have this undergrad where we have to be the best. We have med school where we have to do really well on this one test to get to residency, where we have to train our hardest to be at the top of our class, to get jobs where we want to get jobs, particularly in her field. And so when we finally signed that first attending contract and we're in our early to mid thirties or even, you know, later for some people, 
like this is finally like our sigh of relief. We get a little bit of normalcy in life. We can start a family. Not that that's in her right. cards, but then you get thrown into this, especially as a surgeon, this pandemic where you don't get to operate normally and you don't get to, you know, start collecting your client, your patient base. It's, I would, I would be pulling my hair out, particularly for someone like her, who's just has that wanderlust. Right. Yeah. That's a, it's a lot. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. So you guys are going to get to meet a really cool lady today. Uh, and uh, sounds like an amazing, amazing life story. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah. All right. Without further ado, here comes Sanka. Okay, here we go. Thank you guys so much for inviting me on your on your podcast. It's really a pleasure to be with you and to finally get to meet you both. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of this podcast. Um, and let me just run down briefly um, what I do and who I am. Um, my name is Senka and I'm a general surgeon uh, based in Krakow, Poland. And I've been here since 2005. So I, I finished medical school and my residency here. And during my residency, I also went abroad for a few times with Doctors Without Borders. I'm now back in Poland for, for about two years. And um, I got my first atten- attending job about a year and a half ago. And literally just a few months before the pandemic hit. So it's, it's, it has been quite an interesting year. Um, to be a fresh attending in a foreign country um, during the the pandemic. Um, So I I think we can probably just talk about, um, compare experiences between different countries, how they're coping with um, the pandemic and managing it, um, and see if if anything is similar or different, or um, if if there's any other interesting facts that we can uh, stumble upon along the way. Right. I think that's what's going to be really interesting because uh, America, as, as you know, if you lived here, is very centric, right? So if they're struggling, they're the only ones struggling and they're struggling worse than anyone else is struggling, right? So it's right. going to be interesting um, kind of hearing from you kind of what the leadership's been like over there versus compared to here because, you know, everyone said the leadership here is terrible, but I think it's the response everywhere has been, you know, not very stellar. So I, I, think, cool. I think everywhere you'll find that it's been... A, a, a bunch of hits and misses. It, we all kind of learned by trial and error initially. Um, mm-hmm. And by this point, we've kind of learned what works, what doesn't work. We know which countries have kind of gotten a, a hand of it pretty well. Um, so I think at this point, we're all trying to emulate um, the solutions that worked in other countries. Uh, but surely at the beginning, it was it was very chaotic. Um, we were all lacking PPE and um, mm-hmm. didn't really know how how to deal with with the situation. Um, so it was really just learning by by doing it. And so right now, because, you know, the bulk of listeners are, are American, you're in the midst of a the big wave that we just got through. Is that right? Right, right. So it's really interesting to see how in in different countries, the waves came at different times. Uh, We've all been through two waves now, right? Uh, But they didn't all happen at the same time. So for us, initially, like the spring wasn't that bad at all. Uh, Spring and summer, like you would see in Western Europe or in the States or in China, where they experienced the first peak in in springtime we didn't get our first peak really until late september early october 
Um, that peak happened in, in November, like the highest surge. And now we're experiencing the second one from about mid-late February. And it's a lot worse than the, than the one from, from fall. Yeah, we watched uh, here in Indiana, we must be a lot like Krakow. We had our first major, our major surge um, late, late 2020 um, into early 2021. Uh, we're actually kind of on a slow uptick right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm curious, you've got a cool story. Um, and certainly it all plays into like how you're dealing with the situation right now. But I'm interested um, in hearing about a little bit of your past um, because we've, we can talk COVID into the ground and we will, um, <laughs> but, sure. but how did a Serbian girl, um, end up in doctors without borders and then end up in Krakow, Poland, um, as a surgical attending? I want to know well, that <laughs> while speaking flawless English, it, it while speaking not, better it, English it, than I do. Yes. <laughs> it was not a, a straightforward path that, that is for sure. It was quite convoluted along the way. Um, so yeah, you're right. I was I was born and raised in in Serbia, um, and I lived there until I was 17 years old. And then I decided that I wanted to go to the states, and so I entered a program of foreign exchange um, in in the states. And I ended up being placed in a family in Utah, in Salt Lake City. So. <laughs> Why are, you, why are you laughing? Have you been to Salt Lake City? So do we, do we, now, have a, do we now have a Mormon Serbian Polak? Right. So I was, yeah. I was placed in a Mormon family, like a very conservative Mormon family. And um, I, I come from a very liberal family. So it was it was quite a cultural shock for me at the age of 17, going to a completely you know foreign continent for the first time in my life by myself. Um, but I ended up loving that year in Salt Lake City. That was actually 2001, and I arrived exactly one month before 9/11. So I was I was in Salt Lake City during 9/11, and that was also the year the Winter Olympics were taking place in Salt Lake City. So I pretty much went from one war zone in the Balkans into another war zone in the States, uh, unknowingly. Uh, I, I, I think wars just, just follow me um, along the way as I go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's how my, my whole American um, experience came to be. And then um, I decided to stay for, for college. And um, don't laugh, but I ended up going to Oklahoma for college for my undergrad. I'm laughing. <laughs> How did you pick that? Well, I I I was actually picked by them. I I applied obviously to many places, but coming from abroad, I obviously needed to uh, afford international tuition in a lot of um, U.S. colleges, which I couldn't at the time, obviously. So I had to depend on scholarships, on full rides. And I just went to whichever university offered me a, a full ride. And that's how I ended up going to Oklahoma, to this tiny liberal arts college uh, in the middle of nowhere, about an hour outside of Oklahoma City. So, <laughs> and spent the next four years there, got my undergrad and realized there is no way uh, I could ever afford American medical school. Which I think ultimately proved to be a, a, a good decision on my part, unknowingly. Um, so I ended up going back to Europe for, for medical school, but I, I was already past this stage of, of Serbia. I've kind of 
you know, grown out of it and wanted to try something else and wanted to continue studying in English. Um, so I just looked for medical schools in, in Europe and ended up randomly in Poland, not, mm. not ever having been in Poland or speaking Polish. Um, well, that's terrifying. <laughs> it, was, it was quite terrifying to, to realize like this, this language that's supposed to be Slavic language. So somewhat similar to Serbian, um, is actually not similar at all. And I, I don't think they even use vowels that much. It's, it's all just a string of consonants. <laughs> lots of, lots um, of consonants. It's, it's, it's a definite tongue breaker. It's a definite tongue breaker. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I liked it enough that I, I stayed for residency after medical school and now I'm 15 years here and, and speaking fluent Polish. <laughs> Yeah, so you, you said Polish oh, while doing med school. Like, ha, that's so I did, I did medical school in English, obviously, because I, I, I couldn't do it in Polish because I didn't speak Polish. But then by the time I got to the last year of medical school, I realized I wanted to stay. So I thought, OK, I probably should learn Polish. Um, so I did take an intensive course, uh, kind of like one on one in my last, my last year of medical school. And because um, I, I had to pass Polish language before I could start working as an intern um, in, in the hospital system. Um, I mean, it, it all worked out well in the end. Um, I mean, there was a lot of hoops to, to jump through, but um, I guess it ended up fine and uh, the effort did, did pay off in the end. Um, so, yeah. And then, so you did a general surgery residency, right? Right. So um, I think that the system is a bit different here than it is um, in the states in terms of how long the residency lasts and how it's structured. Um, so here, general surgery is six years long, but you have to do one year as an intern before you start the six years. So it's it's you have seven, seven years, seven years in total. Uh, but that first, oh. but that first intern year is the same for everyone. So, irrespective of what residency go, you go into, you have to do that one intern year, which is pretty much kind of like last year of medical school in the states, where you just kind of rotate through all the clinical um, specialties. Yeah, we have um, those here. They call them transitional years or rotating in, yeah, rotating internships yeah, and stuff. Exactly. Some well, specialties yeah. can certain, have those. Certain specialties have to do it, like derm or you know, like ones that end up being. Okay, before they branch out into yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's it's seven years in total. For me, it was it was a bit longer, uh, a little over a year longer because I did take breaks during my residency to do MSF. Um, so during my residency, I did two missions, um, which were six months each. So that extended my residency by by just over a year. Yeah, and for the U.S. listeners, MF, MSF, uh, we know as Doctors Without Borders, the official right. term is Medicine Sans Frontier. Right, right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a French-based organization. French. Well, initially, it, it was founded in France. Now it's they have headquarters all over the world. But, yeah, initially it was it was a French organization, uh, hence the, the Medicine Sans Frontier. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you said it better than me. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. The uh, I don't speak French is, for the record. I don't speak is, French. I yeah, just pretend that that is very unique. Actually, that you were allowed to um, that you were allowed to take time during your training. I think that in the states that that would probably never ever ever. Oh fly. yeah, that probably wouldn't uh, fly. But I, said, I'm I, just gonna go. <laughs> I, I was gonna say I realized that there is actual. Legally, I'm allowed to take 48 months out of my residency training, like unpaid leave, 
for whatever reason. So I just decided to use it, use it for that. Yeah, that's that's wild. That's that's really cool, actually, too, because it's really challenging to participate in something like that. I have looked hard at Doctors Without Borders multiple times in my life, but you know, you need to give them that minimum six months. I think they exactly. want they prefer a year. And as a grown up with like the bills of a grown up, it's the thought of taking off six months to a year and still coming back to a job is really unlikely. Like you would have to be a transition between jobs with a family and everything else. Yeah, right. so it's cool I, I, think, that you it I think it's more possible if you're working kind of like a, a free agent, you have like a private practice that you can, you know, um, hand over to your colleagues uh, or just, you know, close it down temporarily, um, especially in emergency medicine, because you don't have, you know, long-term like patients that keep coming back to see you. Uh, but yeah, it's it's very difficult if you're working in in a hospital system and um, the hospital depends on you being there at all times. Yeah, I think the construct of like the American contract of of medicine is probably different out there. Like Steve, for example, is like a yours is a democratic group, right, Steve? So like if you we're we months, function as one, but we're actually W two employees. We're hospital employees. Oh, okay, like so you kind of subcontracted by the hospital. Right, he has to find people that's going to cover him, like be okay to cover him within his group where there's a finite amount of people. If I leave, I'm essentially kind of PRN. I bounce around everywhere, you know, and it's fine. So, but like, you know, mortgages and all that shit would be different, difficult. But for Steve, I think his would be way harder than mine. To- yeah, way harder. I'd have to quit my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd yeah. have to quit and then get a new job on the way back. Yeah. I mean, what what uh, you could do, you could, you could look into it. Like, you know, a few years before retirement, which obviously for you is many, many decades from now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you bit your tongue. You better be closer than so, that. So, like a few years before you retire, you can just quit your job and just do MSF for, for a few years before yeah. you. So, tell us where up. you went. Where did you go with uh, MSF? So, my, my first mission was quite quite a nice one for, for someone going abroad for the first time to work uh, as a doctor. So, I, I was in Cairo. It was a mission that was um, designed for refugees coming from East Africa and the Middle East on their way in transit to the the north, um, to Alexandria or Libya, and then crossing over the Mediterranean into Europe. So a lot of them would make a pit stop in, in Cairo and stay there sometimes even for months. Um, and obviously they did not have access to healthcare in Egypt, um, the Egyptian healthcare system. So we were there um, for them. Um, so that was that was my, my first project, kind of like an intro into MSF. And then my, my second mission was more in line with, with I, what I was doing um, as my regular day job, surgery. I, was, I went to Yemen um, in 2016, 17. Um, and I was, I was based in South Yemen about 10 kilometers from the border with North Yemen, so the front lines. Um, and there is there is an ongoing um, civil war, uh, even to this day, um, happening and uh, massive famine that, I mean, you don't hear about it a lot. Uh, every once in a while, it's going to, it's it's in the news, uh, but it's it's pretty much off the radar of, of everyone. Um, so yeah, I was there for my, my second mission. And then my third and fourth mission I did after I finished my residency, but before my my boards. 
Um, so uh, I was in, in Bangladesh uh, on the border with, with Myanmar, working in, in the largest refugee camp in the world at the moment for the Rohingya refugees. So Muslims who were originally in Myanmar and were forced out uh, into Bangladesh and settled just across the border in this massive um, mega camp. Um, and then my last mission, which actually was literally a week after I'd taken my boards, I, I was on the plane to South Sudan um, and I spent almost seven months there in, in the bush in kind of central north uh, South Sudan. Um, so I've, I've, I've tried to kind of, I, it's not like I can really choose where I can go, but um, I, I can't kind of narrow down um, the area or at least um, the, the type of the project that I'm going to. So I tried to kind of sample a little bit of everything um, so I don't get stuck in just one type of, of project. So I've tried to diversify as much as I could. What was yeah, the Sudan like? Sorry? What was the Sudan like? Uh, it was extremely hot and humid. I was there during the rainy season. And when I say rainy season, I mean it's flooding 24-7 for months. Um, it was... It was the most basic of all missions in the sense of what we had and how we lived. So we were pretty much camping for seven months, living in tents. And our hospital was one of those like big industrial sized tents as well that you can put up, you know, within a few days. Um, we didn't have electricity. We had generators. So there was always issues with power. Um, the Internet was was satellite. Um no running water, no no toilets, just a latrine, kind of like a, a five meter uh, deep hole in the ground. Um, lots of snakes around and scorpions. Um, so it was, it was probably the, the most interesting experience for for just living experience, I guess, out of the out of all of them. Um, um, You're far tougher than I am. I tell you. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds really cool, uh, but then I can also imagine um, what it feels like about two months in, looking ahead five months, and man, and and thinking, man, I'm going to have to shit in this hole in the ground for another five months. <laughs> so, so halfway through your mission, you get sent out for for holidays, obviously for like two weeks. Um, so I did go back home to just you know uh, replete my supplies in you know toiletries, foods that I really wanted uh, that I would bring back with me. Um, so you you do get a break um, in the middle, and every six weeks they also send send you an R and R. Uh, for just like a long weekend somewhere close by where it's fairly nice. So you would get sent to Kenya across the border to this like nice resort for, for like two or three days uh, and then go back. Um, so that, that was, that was the nice aspect of it as well. So, um, so what was your role? So you, since you deployed uh, a few times before you were board certified, were you still cutting? Right. So no, I was not. Um, the rule in MSF is that you, you're eligible to apply and work for them two years after you've become a doctor. So you, you don't need to be specialized. You don't need to be an attending. Um, you can do it in the middle of your residency. You just need to have two years of clinical experience as a doctor. So I didn't go as a surgeon while I was, while I was in my training, I was going as an MD with surgical skills. That's kind of the category that they have for people who are doing surgery, but they're not, um, cons consultants or attendings just yet. Um, even now I still can't go, um, as a surgeon because they, they need you to have at least two years working as an attending 
um, before you can go as, as a surgeon because, which kind of makes sense because once, once you go there, you're on your own and you're not just doing your normal surgical work. You're also doing gynecology, you're doing orthopedics, um, you're doing pediatric surgery. So you really have to be, you know, confident in your skill and really independent and know your stuff before you, you can, you can do a surg purely surgical mission. So yeah, all of my missions, amazing. yeah. So all of my missions were were pretty much like running running the ER or and doing like small surgical procedures. Um, and here and there, I would do some other things. Like in Bangladesh, we had like a diphtheria outbreak, so I was running the infectious ward um, with like diphtheria patients. Um, so you you kind of learn as you go with a lot of these things because you you just you know, see things there that you've only read in books before, um, yeah. like things you normally, you will never see in your daily practice, it, you know, in Europe yeah, or in Yeah, it's pretty States. wild. Practicing austere medicine is, is certainly crazy. Um, uh, there's a guy, an ER doctor, him and his wife, who I believe is a general surgeon, who operate a clinic in Chad. Um, and he is involved on in kind of the emergency medicine at large. And he is always posting the things that they are doing over there. And it is insanity what this ER doc and his general surgeon wife are doing because it is way above and beyond what you would ever be tasked to do in the States. They're just making it up as they go with very limited supplies. Right. Um, There's a terrifying. lot of improv along the way. A lot of improv. And you see patients oh, so in like the extreme states because they're, they're so neglected because they've traveled weeks to your facility. So once, you, once they get to you, you see them in very late stages of the disease or extreme states that you would normally not see in, in you know, a northern hemisphere. Um, so it's, it's to see some, some of the presentations of just common diseases that you would never normally see in, in, in a hospital in, in the West, it's, it's just mind-blowing. It's going to make you one hell of a surgeon, though, because you're going to have more of a medical background, really. I mean, honestly, you'll have more medical background in infectious disease than most internists do, you know? I mean, you'll I don't have know more how, how, than... how useful treatment of malaria or diphtheria will yeah. be in Poland, uh, but... <laughs> That's true. You don't have to, you know, write in, the, uh, in your orders, defer to medicine. Right, and, right. And, I, I didn't go yeah. to Ebola. Um, thankfully, they would never send a surgeon to an Ebola mission. Uh, <laughs> I'm like Josh. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, so so you finished your last you finished your last assignment and that was in, in Myanmar, November 2019. And so then and then went back to Krakow. Yes, and then in January of 2020 I I got my first attending job. Uh and then in March um COVID arrived and it was like all, all hell broke loose then. I bet have yeah. you had to have you did your all surgeries get limited much like we did stateside? You know, all these elective cases went away. So they did, not initially, because our numbers were, were quite good for the first four or five months of the pandemic. They were never above 1,000 cases per day. Um, so we, we did have a uh, normal elective schedule going on. And then towards the end of the summer, um, they did limit the elective surgeries only to uh, oncology or an emergency surgery. Oh, well, that's not elective. So from the elective surgeries, we only had um, cancer surgery going on. And then emergency surgeries were going on as, as usual. Right. So 
were you so were you in like the area where you did med school and residency like did you know people or did you move into an entirely new area and then get isolated um well i i i did med school and residency in the same city so um where i did my residency is where i did most of my you know clinical electives and and classes so i already knew knew the people, um, knew all the, the doctors who were working in the department. They knew me. So it was it was quite an easy choice. Our our match system is is not like your match system where you can end up, you know, going to a different area of the country. Most people just stay and do their residency wherever they, they did medical school. Uh, I mean, obviously, you're you're free to, to kind of move around if you want to. Uh, but most people just choose not to, I think, just out of practicality and convenience, because most of them are already living in, in that area. So why move to, to another corner of the country? Um, so yeah, I was I was in Krakow for medical school. And then I, I stayed in the same place for, for residency. Yeah. And where are you now? I'm still in Krakow. <laughs> still in Krakow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm at a different hospital. I'm at a different hospital. So I, I, I did my residency at a at a teaching hospital, at a university hospital. But now I'm working at, at a private hospital, um, which is just a couple of miles down the road. Uh, but it's, it's kind of semi-private um, because it does have a contract with the national healthcare system. Uh, so it does have, um, you know, Patients who are not paying, obviously, because we, we do have a, a single payer nationalized system. And then it has the so-called commercial patients who are the, the paying patients. So it's kind of like a hybrid. Why would someone elect to be a paying patient? Is that because you jump a line? Uh, like yeah, that... of course. Everything mm-hmm. is, is, sure. is quicker, easier. You get a single room. Um, you get uh, catering. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, private patients, they usually come in for for smaller procedures um I, I i really cannot recall a private paying patient for you know cancer surgery for instance it's, it's usually minor things like you know hernias or um, plastic surgery um or or uh, cholecystectomies like planned cholecystectomies so usually minor things but for for bigger surgeries obviously uh most people come through the, the national healthcare system so uh, as a surgeon, have they diverted you to doing any sort of COVID care? Thankfully not. Um, okay. I, I, was, I, was, I was a little worried initially that that might, that, that might be the case. Um, but they, they ended up diverting um, a chunk of the nurses and anesthesiologists for the, mo- for the most part. Um, they, they didn't divert um, surgeons that, that I know of. I know now in this current wave that we have... Um, some people got diverted to the COVID hospitals um, just randomly. So I know, for instance, an ortho intern who got diverted to, to a, a COVID hospital, um, which, I, I mean, I don't even know how they make this decision. It sounds quite random. Why would you, you know, send an ortho resident, um, an intern, um, to a, a COVID hospital? Because here, not every hospital is doing COVID. Uh, so I think I think that's probably important to to mention, which could be um, something that's very different. So th- each each province in the country um, will designate, like a governor of each province in the country will designate certain hospitals in the province as COVID hospitals. So these hospitals w- will pretty much seize all their regular activities and do only COVID. Every department, it's all COVID around the clock. 
So the rest of the hospitals in the area kind of have to take on the, the patient load from these other hospitals because their EDs are also closed down because they're doing only COVID. So when, when, when staff gets oh, diverted. Like a staff can't walk through the doors. Yeah, you right? can't. You can't. You, yeah. can only, you can only end up in that hospital if you are a confirmed right. COVID case. Um, whereas all the other hospitals are doing their regular activities. And then obviously they will have some COVID patients as well because it's, it's impossible to, to keep them separate. But I think most of the COVID cases that we had in our hospital, we ended up transferring them when that was medically feasible to the COVID hospital uh, where they would be um, strictly under, under you know, um, staff dealing with, with COVID. Obviously, it was, it was difficult for like early post-op period. If they had COVID, we, we can't send them, you know, out as, as soon as the surgery is over. They still have to be in, in, under our care for, for a few more days. So we had isolation rooms for those cases. But for, for the most part, um, I, I didn't personally uh, have to deal a lot with, with COVID. Um, I think the most cases I've seen was probably people coming through ED, um, like the numerous consults that that I would do in in emergency department but um not strictly COVID no I was not I was not delegated so um I'm somewhat thankful for that <laughs> but because I, I obviously I can't work events um so not not sure how useful I would be to be honest well I would say as of all of your abroad work with kind of very minimal resources, I think you'd be fine. You're not all vent- <laughs> well, the, the thing, like with, with all those missions, I mean, we, we don't have ventilators. It's just, you know, ambu bag and an oxygen concentrator, a, a bottle of, con- of like oxygen if you're lucky. Um, but it's pretty much all, all manual and um, in, there is no intubation. You can just do a, a laryngeal mask at the most. Um, because if, if they need a, a bigger surgery, they would get transferred to a, a bigger uh, center, which sometimes, you know, it's a few days travel or we have to wait for, for like a small plane to land on a dirt strip to pick them up, which happens maybe once or twice a week, depending on weather conditions. Um, so, yeah, it, it, logistically, it becomes quite difficult um, to get these patients in, in the rural setting to, to a center where they can get, you know, top-level top surgery. How are vaccinations going in Poland? Oh, I was, I was, I'm so glad you were asking about that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's actually what, one thing that I'm, I'm quite happy with how the response was. Um, obviously, initially, it was a slow start uh, because we, Poland is part of the European Union. So it's a very centralized system. So even the vaccinations, they had to go through the European Union Commission. They had to be approved by the European Medicine um, Agency. And then from the central area, so in Brussels, they would send out shipments, um, deliveries of vaccines to all the member states. Um, so this initially made it a bit slower. Um, and then you've, you've heard about um, all the, the issues with um, the production of AstraZeneca and, you know, the, the political squabbles between the UK and the European Union, um, you know, the European Union accusing uh, UK of, of getting the AstraZeneca vaccine preferentially because they're UK based um, and then AstraZeneca not delivering on the contract enough vaccines to the European Union. 
So it's, it's, it's been a bit of a mess. Um, yeah, and then they shut it down, right? Yeah, Have they, they did. started giving it again because of the clotting disorder right, that doesn't really right. exist? So right, the, the panic just spread like wildfire initially once these like literally few cases emerged in, in Germany. I think it was in Germany. They had like seven cases of um, thromboembolism of, uh, of the brain. Uh, and it wasn't even like DVT in the legs or PE. Um, so that's that's why they were they were quite nervous about it. But when you consider that this is out of tens of millions of vaccines and you have seven or eight cases, um, you realize it's 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 even less than you would have in a normal population. Right. Uh, it's hard to explain that to the it, it's hard to explain that to non medical people like the how risk how risk stratification works and you know, you get these clickbait headlines that terrify people right. because I've already, I, I've been messaged several times about the AstraZeneca vaccine, which to my knowledge, I don't even have access to anyway. Um, but mm. everyone is looking for that. I was like, you know, you're in more danger of thromboembolism <laughs> if you fly in an airplane than you right. are if you get this vaccine, right. right? And certainly you're at higher risk of dying of COVID uh, than oh, any absolutely. of that. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Misinformation and kind of fear in in Poland versus here, because like we can't, I can't, I can throw a rock and hit eight people that don't want to get the vaccine because of some misinformation that they're reading. So it exists here. Um, it's not as as widespread and, and popular as it is in the states. It's it's still quite on the fringes of of society and of the media here as well. But I mean, everyone is connected nowadays, so. We all get the same news. We know what's going on in the UK. We know what's going on in the US. We hear about these, you know, misinformation tactics and um, all the myths that people are spreading about whether it be COVID or the, or the vaccine. Um, so, so you know, things like spread, especially on, on Facebook, uh, Twitter, not so much. Twitter is not that popular in, in Poland uh, as much as Facebook still is. Um, and then I mean, you have people who are, you know, non-medics going on on television, on radio, and repeating these things. And, and these are quite popular shows, so people do get access to to these misinformation, and it it, it does exist, but probably not to the same level as it does in the states. I mean, same thing so goes for like anti-maskers, for instance. Less per capita tinfoil hat wearers there. <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, masks were quite well accepted here. Um, the only issue is that people would just wear them wrong. Um, you know, yeah, under the nose, on the chin. chin um, I mean, I would see people like smoke going down the street smoking and they would just like pull their mask down to like inhale and exhale. Um, it, you know, I mean, you, you notice these, you know, absurd things. But, that's the one with, like, mesh. Oh yeah, right. Like, what? What is the point? You know, that's just an asshole. That's somebody who is. That's a protest. Uh, that's a protest. Right, mask I think. Right I there. think I saw some some American politicians. Um, I, I I don't know. It was Congress in the Congress. I, I don't know. Yeah. The House of Representatives or the Senate. They were wearing you know match, uh, match masks. One had something the effect of "I'm only wearing this so I don't get canceled" or something stupid. I can't yeah, remember what it was. It was like the CO2 um, retention or something like that as well. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. I've heard that as well. It, it, thankfully, it hasn't it hasn't reached that level um, of absurdity here as well. It certainly hasn't hasn't gotten violent like it has in the states, where you know people had to be 
physically removed from objects for refusing to wear a mask or they would attack someone who is wearing a mask. Uh, I, have, I haven't heard of cases like that. I think people here are mostly like if they're not wearing a mask or if they're wearing it improperly, if you tell them like, hey, put your mask on, I mean, they would just be like, you know, they'll maybe you know, be disgruntled, but they'll do it. Um, yeah, no no one's going to like pull, pull a gun out and kill you. <laughs> Yeah, over here they may uh, they'll video them beating your ass on camera at Walmart or something. Right, you know? right, and you never know who's like who has like a shotgun like in their back pocket. <laughs> that yeah. is correct. We're a terrifying, country, man. <laughs> it's like in the states, it's very it's very you know risky to speak to strangers because um, you just you just never know what they have in their car. Um, it's risky in general to speak your mind here because you don't know what people will just hold against you for the next year and a half till they see you again. It's yeah, just... right, right. Like you, you don't know who is running, you know, background information on you because you said something, you know, they didn't like. Yeah. You should hear about Steve's little small town he lives in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's just you know the middle of the country is is extremely. Uh, ex- it, you can go in the states and you can drive you know, a hundred miles and you can go from liberal bastion into really, really aggressively conservative, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm really politically a centrist. I'm, I'm as center as you can get, but in the modern political world, I have been like, somehow I, I stand out as like this liberal completely, you know, I think that came on after the, the how to Rona thing. Uh, yeah people the how to rona thing got me uh got it pissed off some people around here i'll tell you that (laughs) it definitely did um i have but you know it's kind of cool uh because you can see because i'm so loud every now and again i'll walk down the street or i'll be at work and i'll get just like a kind of a conspiratorial nod and thumbs up <laughs> quietly because it, you know that they, they, they like it, but they're afraid to say it out loud. So, this is your legacy, Steve. This is what you'll be remembered right. for forever. <laughs> that's right. So it's yeah. kind of crazy. So you have this kind of turbulent decade of, of school moving all over, doing all these missions, and then you're supposed to be settling down and then you just hit this just further turbulence. It hit me, you know, like a ton of bricks, but pretty much just like everyone else, you know, um, my, my plans weren't, you know, completely destroyed um, because, because of COVID, like some other people. So I'm, I'm quite fortunate in, in that sense that I'm, I'm still doing my job. I have an income. I'm not furloughed. Right. Um, I haven't been so sick. It was going to be the first time in your life where you could settle, actually make some money, get things for yourself. <laughs> right, right. Now, but then, like, even if you make the money, like, you just don't have any any ways to spend it uh, other than right. just, like, shopping online. You can't go anywhere. Um, I mean, like, you know, that all got kind of squashed. So now you I just went through a metric fuck ton of Amazon boxes this year. I will tell you that right now. <laughs> I think I think we were all in the same boat pretty much with, with online shopping this year. Uh, for sure. You know, buying just useless random stuff that we don't need um you know buying buying happiness um is, yeah is what i called it or distraction at least um, yeah. but to be honest like i i i didn't have it nearly as as bad as, as some people did even like 
Half of my family was sick with COVID in Serbia, but they all made it through. Even my 89-year-old grandma with, you know, diabetes on insulin, she was in ICU and all that, but not intubated. She came out of it. Um, my mom and my aunt had it as well. So they're all now vaccinated and we've all had, you know, vaccines from Pfizer, you know, down to the Chinese vaccine. So all in, in one family. Nice. Yeah. Are you guys able to, in the EU, are you able to travel freely now or are you? Not exactly. Um, Non-essential travel is very discouraged. Um, So going on holidays, um, not not really possible right now. Um, Each country kind of set up its own rules, like who to let in, under what conditions, um uk has now it's its own set of rules because they're not in the eu anymore from starting from this year um when it comes to poland you can come in but you have to be under mandatory quarantine for 10 days unless you have proof of vaccination or you have a negative test uh, which you've taken at least 48 hours before coming in um where do they check that um so you you have to have a certificate with you um, or a test result on paper, um, right. or, or I, like I lived in the UK. I lived in the UK for a while. And certainly when we crossed over onto the mainland, um, you have to show your passport to get into France, you know, right. uh, but once I was in Western Europe, you could travel pretty freely. There were no checks at most borders. Are there checks in your borders at, into Poland? There aren't checks. Well, with the UK, it was always like this because they were in the EU, but they were not in the Schengen zone. So Schengen zone is the travel free border free zone. And only the, EU, the UK and Ireland are not in it. All the other European countries are. Um, so that that was the difference why you had to show your passport when you were going from the UK to the mainland. Um, but Schengen zone is still very much a thing. And you, you can travel between countries without having to show your a passport. But now you have to show your vaccination card or your uh, negative tests. So that, that, that is a different kind of a passport nowadays. Um, For sure. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of people over here already yeah. getting very pissed off about that because, the, you know, New York is creating, I think they call it the Excelsior Pass. Oh, and yeah. they're going to start using it to prove immunity to go to big events. If you want to go to the like Madison Square Garden um, and people are already saying, you know, the this is the big boot of the state on your neck. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's so easy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's bound to happen. Like you're seeing more and more places do it. Poland was actually the first European country to introduce this rule that if you've had, um, if you have vaccine proof, you can come in and not have to quarantine. This has been in place since December 28th, um, which obviously means it doesn't, it didn't apply to Europeans at the time because the first vaccines in the European Union were dispatched on the 27th of December. Um, but yeah, we were, we were the, the first country that said, if you're vaccinated, um, you know, it's, you're, you're free to come in and not have any rules imposed on you. Yeah, I don't have any problem with that. I got in an argument with uh, a fellow physician at work the other night about that. I said, you know, this is the cost of living in society. Uh, to me, it's just, you know, we have to we have to take care of each other to a certain degree. But where I'm from is a very freedom oriented, self-determining right, 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 right. And, and stuff. So I'm like, you know, I just told him, I said, if you want to if you want to build your farmhouse out on the land and raise your cattle and, and grow your food uh, and have all the guns you want, just stay the fuck out of society. 
you know, if you want to come and try to kill my mom uh, or anything like that with your funky droplets, then you're going to have to pay this price. It's it's a pretty mild price to pay for everybody to keep having society, I think. Right. right. Well, that's egocentricity here, man. That's not that's never going to be seen by the people that are offending it. You know, mm. I think a lot of people were were you know, against this vaccine passport thing because they saw it as a discrimination discrimination method uh, because, you know, their turn to get the vaccine was probably a lot later and, you know, they would have to wait to get their vaccine while everyone else who is vaccinated is, is free to do and, and go wherever while they had to wait their turn uh, to be in the category that's that's being vaccinated at the time. Um, so I can I can kind of see why why people were were initially against it, but you know the, the more people we we see get vaccinated, the more people are calling for it. To be honest, um, yeah, because it doesn't affect them anymore. Yeah, yeah right, absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that that's definitely. I think Definitely. we we are now close to about twenty percent of the population being vaccinated. Um, well, That's at least good. with I, one shot. At least with one shot. So yeah, we are about the same in India in my state. At least I don't know about the. That's so weird because we're different from state to state. We have different rules. Mm-hmm. We just we just lowered our vaccination rate now to thirties and up starting today, and pretty soon okay. we're going to sixteen and up. And we've got about twenty five percent of Hoosiers who have at least one. And like 17 or 18% who are fully vaccinated. Okay. Uh, where we kind of stand today. I just. Hoosier, by the way, is a weird word for an Indian. Hoosier? Hoosier. It's a Hoosier. Yeah. It's like I had a football to term, isn't it? Brian Williams kept calling us yeah. Indianans when I was going on his show. Indianans? Indianans. Uh, yeah. And I, I let it slide once I, because I'm terrified every time I'm on there with him and he called us Indianans and it did not <laughs> register. And I immediately got like 10 text messages from friends and they're like, we're Hoosiers. You got to correct him. So I called him out. Oh, the next wow. time Nationalism on like state level. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. We are not Indianans. We are Hoosiers. Uh, but actually Hoosiers. That's, that's quite interesting that you mentioned that each state is kind of doing their own thing. I think that yeah. is, is one of the main differences as well. Um, with a lot of the European countries, because here everything is very centralized. Everything is coming from top down. Everything is is federal. All these like the vaccination program is a national program. It's coming. It, the rules are set for everyone the same. There is no freedom for each individual province to do whatever they want. So we all we all follow the same rules. Um, we all get the the same amount of vaccines dispatched. Uh, so everything is is centralized. That's that was also how the whole pandemic was managed as well. It was a very centralized operation, uh, which proved to be quite fatal in the States, I guess, that it was not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's tough because everybody, nobody knew what to do. And clearly we were getting no federal leadership uh, and the leadership we were getting was intentionally misleading leadership. Yeah. Um, mm, but right. not, not like even some of the states were leaving it city to city to manage. Oh, well, we did, we've done that. Yeah, here our governor was wouldn't, uh, wouldn't take a stance because he was obviously in the pocket of, you know, our previous president. And so he left it up for the cities to, to make their own ordinances. Yeah. Oh, that is just chaos. It's challenging, you know, and, and some of it, it would have been nice to have a top down look on this because my town, my, my city shut down before we ever saw a case. We were like in complete lockdown, but it hadn't really made it to the County yet. Um, and then by the time we were actually starting to see numbers, our people were so, 
tired of sitting in their houses. They were like, fuck it. I don't care because they, you know, there was no top down on this. They just said, Oh, COVID's here, shut down the whole state. Um, And if they could have done it more in a more targeted manner, I think that people would have understood. It should have been dealt with just like any other disaster or a catastrophe, right? You have a centralized agency like FEMA that would go right. in and, and do everything. So this would be the same, just on a more massive scale. So yeah, definitely a, a federal uh, response was, was called for and, and that didn't happen. Yeah, a lot of reputations ruined. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was just catching up with, with the news today about Dr. Burks. And, Dr. Burks. And yeah. You know, the, the, I feel for her. That, that, that was a tough uh, situation. I don't, know. I don't feel can, for her that but... much, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I, I get, I get the, I get her instinct to try and massage an ego and still maintain relevancy, but she just, she, she went too far at some point. Mm. Your I think her instinct was a lot to do with, with, you know, self-interest and self-preservation really, um, not to get, you know, backlash in, in, in the media, in the Republican media or the Trump media. Um, Fauci was the master. Fauci just stood there and called bullshit and waited to be fired. Right, you know? right. I mean, yeah. he he got a lot of abuse from the right, um, so, for sure, and threats and and everything. So it wasn't it wasn't like an it. easy ride for him either. But at least he came out of it, you know, unscathed in terms of his reputation. I think Burks was trying to she was trying to play both sides mm-hmm. and maintain yeah. some level. Yeah, it, it, it did uh, backfire in the end because she she's. Hard. I mean, rightly being you know called out on on all of it. Um, well, especially it's, when it's she all comes video. out. <laughs> yeah, well, especially now that she came out and said openly that if we had done this better, like three or four hundred thousand people would maybe wouldn't have died. Now, right, it's of, like you were on the COVID people, task force. Like <laughs> yeah. you could have said something, yeah. you know. Yeah, a lot of people. Uh, lessons yes. learned, I hope. I hope yeah. so. I doubt it, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I doubt it. Uh, I think that this has been our test for the for not if but when we get a more uh, more deadly strain coming out um, of wherever it comes from. Um, I think we've already proven that as a country, we don't have the tolerance to do what it takes to to do that i think it'll just be worse the next time i, I, I tolerance is no compassion like all it is is you do your part to help everyone else and that's just too much to ask right i i think the whole individual mentality in the states um really didn't serve serve you guys so well uh everyone kind of you know looking out for themselves rather than you know the greater good the community um nothing more than the toilet paper shit that was happening in march <laughs> We were not immune. We were not immune either. There was like a week where all the toilet paper was gone. Uh, But then, you know, people people kind of got back to their senses and toilet paper was was back on as well. Um, I will tell you, I order my toilet paper online from (laughs) whogivesacrap.com. They're not sponsoring this podcast, but I had... During the worst of it, I had 96 rolls. I felt like I was rolling a kingpin uh, because my kids were gone and I had had it ordered at the same rate that I had with two other people in the house. So I was flush with oh, TP. Wow. Bamboo, bamboo TP. My butt was clean, boys and girls. Did you use the term flush on purpose there? Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> we're yeah. like selling it back and making money off of it. That's right, man. Yeah, I was like, you know what it is? Uh, give me some of that bourbon. I, I think my 
favorite, like, my favorite toilet paper story has to be the Australians who pretty much haven't seen any COVID at all, but they have bought up all the toilet paper in the country. <laughs> it's like, did they do the same thing? Right. I don't, I don't know. Like, I, they're burning just, it for energy now. Maybe they were feeling they were missing out. Um, I, I don't know, but all the toilet paper was gone in Australia and no COVID ever came. Yeah, the uh, it, it was uh, a blessing to be an island nation with competent leadership, especially New Zealand this year. Right. Uh, right. Their prime minister is the shit. She's like my hero. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think we we all need we all need a Jacinda um, at the top of the government, but for sure. So it sounds like by. Steve. So Steve became a toilet paper kingpin. I think every white guy in America started a podcast. Um, <laughs> at what point did you start experimenting with your green thumb or murdering plan? My, whichever my one you backup plan for the toilet paper, if you know, if all supplies go down, is just to get it from the hospital. <laughs> one ply, baby, one ply. One ply, and it's more like sandpaper than toilet paper, to be honest. Tell us about your gardening. My gardening. Your plants. Oh. <laughs> so the, the the plant you see in the back is indestructible because it is plastic. Um, <laughs> and why do you need a plastic plant, Sanka? Because it's great. Like you don't need to do anything with it. It looks the same year round. Um, doesn't what, what happens to your anything and gives a lot of love. Um, it's a fake lemon tree that I have for 11 months of the year. And then one month of the year, I have a Christmas tree in that same place um, with the same lights on, actually. <laughs> I, 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 do have, I do have real plants around the house, um, but they're in, in high rotation because they do die on me quite frequently. Very quickly. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, and Steve, you got anything else? No, man, it was really super cool to beat you. Um, oh, I, I loved it. It was, it was my first hope... time doing a, a podcast ever, so I was I was quite quite nervous. But oh um, no, it's just a chat. you we're guys are super here. chill, so I got totally we're, we're, <laughs> we're just killing time during the <laughs> pandemic and uh, putting it out there. Uh, my mom will hear us, so that's cool. Um, Lovely. And, uh, Hi, mom. My wife, Steve's mom. My wife may or may not listen in the car at some point in time. I know. Mine doesn't. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> my family's going to care that much, to be honest. Um, yeah, no biggie. <laughs> He's never going to do it either. Although yeah. both, my, both of my parents are just freshly retired, so they have all this time on their hands, so may, they may have a listen. Um, yeah. Well, that's really cool. Well, it was great getting to know you. We appreciate you giving us time. I know um, we, we got we follow each other on Twitter so much, and yeah, for sure, Twitter. But this was this was cool to uh, talk talk in person, even though we, it, we actually can't see you. <laughs> I know this is bullshit. I'm going to get my camera fixed. I, I don't know how I'm going to do it next time. I was, but, I was really uh, hoping gonna you were going to come on with, with that half face mask. Oh, yes. My, my, uh, my mask is amazing. I hate to love it and I love to hate it. Yeah, that's the point. That's the <laughs> point. Yeah, awesome. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Burnt Podcast. Uh, as usual, these are where I reserve the time to make fun of Steve, but you know, today the jokes kind of wrote themselves. Steve had diarrhea. Instead of diarrhea of the mouth, he had actual diarrhea for the first time. Um, so again, uh, like us, follow us. If you have feedback, give us feedback. Uh, we'll see you next week.